The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by WhisperSync for Voice, an Amazon and Audible innovation. Add narration to more than 60,000 Kindle bestsellers and popular titles. Read on your tablet, and when it's time to go, pick up where you left off by switching to audio and listening on your phone. Learn more about WhisperSync for Voice by visiting Amazon.com slash CultureFest. And by Beechnut Organics. At Beechnut, homemade is their inspiration. It's not baby food. It's real food for babies. Real organic fruits and vegetables and nothing more. Nobody else makes food for babies this way. Beechnut Organics are now available at Target. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. Hey, Panoply listener, looking for more podcasts for your playlist? Check out the Vulture TV podcast for great discussion about the latest TV shows, or check out Sex Lives for fascinating conversations about sex. You can find them on iTunes, panoply.fm, or on your favorite podcasting app. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, if only Garfield had taken his clothes off edition. It's Wednesday, October 14th, 2015. On today's show, 99 Homes is an indie film written and directed by Ramin Barami. It stars Andrew Garfield as a decent young man negotiating his collapsed reality in the aftermath of the housing bust. And then Pulitzer Prize-winning critic Wesley Morris asks, what has happened to stable notions of identity? The old warhorses of gender, race, sexual preference, etc. seem to be in radical flux. He joins us to discuss. And finally, Dana, our Dana, went to Japan. We discuss her wondrous travelogue come meditation. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, uh, the eponymous Dana Stevens. <laughs> the me that is me. Hello. You, are, you are named after yourself. Are you sure you're you, Dana? <laughs> yeah, actually, we need Wesley Morris in here to come help us clarify the fluid that. identity today. <laughs> Dana and I are just waving like seaweed here, merging in and out of each other's consciousnesses. <laughs> Why, that was poetic. Uh, Dana, welcome to the show. Hello. Do we have any business? We do. I have several items for the assembled. There are not one, not two, but three live shows coming up that our listeners should be aware of. The first is that we are doing our first ever straight up proper Slate Culture Gab Fest in San Francisco at the Brava Theater on November 8th. We cannot wait. We did kind of a teasy show last year where we, we shared the stage with the Political Gab Fest, which was incredibly fun, but we didn't get to quite put on a full Culture Fest Hootenanny. So Hootenannies are a Bruin for San Fran. Also, we are going to be participating along with the folks from the Political Fest and Hang Up and a few other Slate stars at the second annual Superfest, which is happening at Town Hall on November 16th. So you can get all of your jam-packed Slate podcast excitement in one glorious night at Town Hall in New York. And finally, I wanted to let you all know that tickets are still available in Washington, D.C. for a live taping of Mom and Dad are Fighting, which you guys close your ears. Maybe my favorite Slate podcast right now. I fucking love their show. They are so smart and wise and honest about parenting in a way that so much parenting media is not. And I love listening to them. And I think it'll be a very fun show. Special guest John Dickerson will be there to talk about great and terrible presidential parenting moments, which sounds to be like a very fun uh, whistle-stop mom and dad crossover. 
So that should be a great show. It's on October 20th at the Woolly Mammoth in Washington, D.C. You can find tickets to all of these events at Slate.com slash live. So Culture Fest in San Fran, Superfest in New York, Mom and Dad in D.C., go sign up. I also have an announcement, which is that our Slate Plus segment today will be me, Steve, and Dana answering a listener question. Actually, the listener asked it to us in person after the Chicago Live show. He wants to know, what is your life's defining metaphor? A question which supposes that life has, one has a defining metaphor for, for one's life, which may or may not be true. So we will interrogate both that notion and what such metaphors might or might not be on our plus segment this week. All right, Steve, let's dig in. Thanks, Julia. All right, moving forward. 99 Home stars Andrew Garfield, he of the lesser Spider-Man iteration, as Dennis Nash, a young man who's fallen on hard times after the real estate crash. He's forced out of his foreclosed home in a maximally humiliating fashion, and then the screw only turns further. He goes to work for the very same predatory broker who forced him out of his home. And this latter, I should say, is played uh, with a kind of wicked elan, with an e-cigarette and an ankle holster and an angry sneer by the actor Michael Shannon. Why don't we listen to a clip? You think America 2010 gives a flying rat's ass about Carver or Nash? Mm-mm. America doesn't bail out the losers. America was built by bailing out winners, by rigging a nation of the winners, for the winners, by the winners. You go to church, Nash? You go to church? Sure. Only one in a hundred's gonna get on that ark, son. And every other poor soul's gonna drown. I'm not going to drown. Well, that's a cheerful message about the state of American capitalism. Dana, what did you make of this? What did you make of this film? Well, I'm the person who made us see it. So I'm very curious to hear what you guys thought of it. To me, I was sold at the name Ramin Barani. When I saw that he was the the director and co-writer of the movie, I immediately wanted us to do it because we haven't done one of his films. And to me, he's he's one of the most exciting young American directors. Although I will say this is probably my least favorite of my of his movies I've seen. And yet I think it's very, very good. But it, it's it's somewhat I think he's moving in a, in a different direction. He's a guy who A.O. Scott compared him to the Italian neorealists in his review of, of this movie. He started out his career making movies about extremely marginalized, usually immigrants. His first movie, which is called Man Push Cart, which I think is maybe still his best movie, it's a really impressive debut, is about a Pakistani um, food cart attendant. And uh, and his second one, Chop Shop, is about a pair of immigrant children. His third, which is called Goodbye Solo, another great movie, is about an African cab driver. So this is the first Ramin Bahrani movie I've seen that's about white people, although he had another starring Dennis Quaid and Zac Efron that was supposed to be bad, and I didn't see it. Anyway, I, I think even though he is working more in the mainstream here with known actors, that he continues to have this feeling of telling stories that no one else is telling, that are kind of on the margin, and that are about people who precisely are kind of despairing because their stories are not not recognized and told. And I think he does that really, really well here. That, that mm. clip we played, I, th- I think, is, shows one of the movie's weaknesses, which is that sometimes the dialogue can be sort of thesis-driven. And I think that speech from Michael Shannon, as scary as it is, the way he delivers it, is a little bit too heavy-handed of a delivery of the, of the movie's message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Julia, this movie, in addition to the neorealism of its style, has a little bit of David Mamet and Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross at its center. Um, how do those two things go together for you? Yeah, I'm glad I saw this movie and I admired it and it makes me want to check out more of Brownie's work. But 
I think this movie is deeply flawed in a couple of ways, and it doesn't make it uninteresting or not worth seeing, but it's far from a perfect and beautifully executed movie. One of the flaws, I think, is, and it's one of the movie's virtues as well, but one issue is just the extreme literalism and kind of heavy-handedness and on-the-noseness of a lot of the dialogue, which that speech from Shannon is both one of the most compelling and great moments of the film. It does sort of feel like hothouse theater. This is a movie that could kind of be it a play. It could be stagey. Yeah, you're it's right. A, it's a little stagey at times in terms of the kind of the gorgeous monologueness of it. But one thing that struck me about it is this is basically Magic Mike, but without the stripping. It's like Magic Mike without the <laughs> metaphor, right? It's like the the, the, mean, the lead character is the same guy. He's like a skilled, out-of-work builder in Florida who's just beset and his world is about to crumble because the economy is so messed up. But instead of this kind of fantastical escape metaphor about masculinity, you just kind of get this literal Faustian tale where he's he's tempted and believes he sees a way to save his family and to respect himself by following the Michael Shannon character down this dark path of misbehavior. And as in most Faustian tales, it doesn't work out great at the end. Mm-hmm. You know, not all movies about the economy should be Magic Mike, but it was it was that movie managed to say a lot of. I mean, I know Steve, you and I may be outliers in the American cultural critic community and believe in taking that film very seriously as economic commentary. But I think that movie managed to use like sophisticated metaphor and entertainment to say something really interesting about how dispossessed and powerless. Mm-hmm. American men of a certain class were made to feel by the economic turmoil of the last five years. And this mm-hmm. movie is trying to say similar things, just much less inventively. Yeah, with a great setup, though, because essentially this guy's masculine self-respect has been placed behind this arbitrary paywall by this man, by this broker who has literally leveraged him out of his own house and then is willing to basically, it then says to him, basically, I'll give you back your life. I'll give you back your domesticity and your masculine self-respect if you work for me. Um, That's a really powerful setup. You know, the movie it reminded me of was uh, Boiler Room a little bit which was Wolf of Wall Street before they made Wolf of Wall Street. It's actually a better movie than Wolf of Wall Street by far. It stars Vin Diesel as a um, a stockbroker or a kind of boiler room style pump and dump uh, finance guy. And it's the classic temptation narrative of the kind of naive young guy who begins to relate to this enormously charismatic, but he suspects wi- essentially wicked figure. Uh, first of all, I m- totally admire the movie, but I do think it suffers from a couple of problems. The first is that the degree to which Michael Shannon is allowed to be sexy or appeal to our lesser nature in a way that's genuinely tempting is too minimalized. He's pretty obviously wicked. You don't really love... I love his performance. I don't love being in that character's presence in some way that makes me feel icky about myself or my own id tendencies. So, in fact, Andrew Garfield's temptation at the hands of this man is is totally minimal. In fact, he sees him in purely instrumental terms. I get to get back my house so that my mother and my son can live with a degree of safety, security, economic security. He doesn't really ever see him as tempting or admirable. And so this brings up to me the largest problem of the film, which I hate to say it is Garfield. I really admire Garfield as an actor. I really love him in the BBC miniseries Red Riding. 
and in social network. Um, I found him very hard to believe as a deeply conflicted working class man. He still looks to me like a guy on break from Milton Academy um, a little too much. And I just didn't see him as life hardened enough. And he plays him as extremely sensitive. He cries a fair amount in this film. And I thought that was a real problem. I'm curious to know what you guys Oh, I loved Andrew Garfield in this role. I mean, the movie definitely has the prettiness problem. I mean, Laura Dern plays Andrew Garfield's mother. I was trying to do math in my head, like, is it even possible that Laura Dern could be his mother? I guess she had him really young, which she says at one point in the movie she did. I sort of... But they're all too pretty to be people that are getting dispossessed in Florida. But I wouldn't say it was looks. I would say that it's... He's... He's not a life-hardened actor, which is no terrible thing. He just seemed to me this was out of his range in a way that's no, you know, it's no shame, but I don't know. I don't know that he was meant to be that life-hardened, though. I mean, they were like middle-class, working-class people. It it wasn't necessarily implied. I mean, I I think, in fact, that's part of what the movie is about, is that just trying to sort of have a reasonably modest middle-class lifestyle where you own a small, one-story brick house has become something that's impossible in America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I would frame it slightly differently. I think his character doesn't work very well in the film, but I don't think it's his performance. I think he actually does kind of a good job being a, like, naive, confused guy. But the writing's just a little thin. Like, we don't quite know who this guy is. We don't know where he comes from. It seems clear that he's motivated just by direst necessity when he first comes into the company of Michael Shannon and starts to work for him. And then he begins to become animated by the feeling of success and power that comes with actually being able to bring home a paycheck and and begin to provide for his family again. But beyond that, it's sort of unclear who he is or what he was or why he would make the decisions. And there's a whole climactic third of the film where he really struggles with the moral implications of the life that he's begun to choose where he makes a series of decisions that don't seem particularly founded by the guy that we've come to know over the course of the film and his family, played by Laura Dern as his mom and a young actor as his son, make a bunch of decisions that don't feel based in characters that have been established or realism. I mean, I will say to me, I actually liked that this was Wolf of Wall Street without the babes, that it was Boiler Room without the sense of fun and pizzazz, that it was like Mm -hmm. a desperation game. To me, that's sort of kind of a twist on the sort of movie that that has been made before it. But the thing I found most powerful about it actually was the middle third when Mm -hmm. Michael Shannon is making the case for behaving in the way he's behaving. And it's actually fairly persuasive. I mean, we're talking about Michael Shannon as a predatory broker. And by the end of the film, he quite clearly is. But actually, in the first scene where he's evicting the guy... I don't know that we think that is predatory. He's, he, as he explains in a different monologue, he was just a normal broker trying to buy people homes and then the whole market fell out beneath him and he found this whole different life as a guy who evicts people, which yeah. is not what he wants to do. You know, And then as he begins to realize the contours of the new economy, he finds ways to, to cut corners, to steal from the feds, to be padding a little income on the sides as he, as he begins to broker the wave of evictions and foreclosures that's happening. But the movie is at its most interesting when, when Michael Shannon is not yes. so evil. And then in the final third, he just gets really evil and, yes. and, and it gets much more boring. Like, I actually think if this movie had just stayed in that middle ground where 
Andrew Garfield gets his life back, but with a set of moral compromises that the movie was genuinely uncertain about, it would have been a much stronger movie. I completely agree. And it, it allows Michael Shannon to do the most, the less schematic the movie is, the more he gets to act and be interesting. My And my problem, I want to be clear with the movie, is not that there wasn't that completely rote and completely trite middle third where there's a lot of fake boobs and cocaine and like the guy kind of loves it. I mean, nobody needs to see that movie again. I wanted it to be a little bit more like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which is what this guy's getting back isn't coke, booze, or even money. What he's getting back is his self-respect. And that, for him, feels would feel profoundly, almost disgustingly ambivalent because he's doing it by evicting people, right? And the movie's set up with that initial eviction scene that initial eviction scene is what, however we feel about the economic forces that bring about, you know, over leveraged homeowners and their, you know, and the bank's, you know, kind of legal right to repossess a home in default. You know, that scene is meant to be emotionally true in the sense that he is humiliated and he is told by a sheriff that he is trespassing in his own home. That is meant to emotionally devastate the audience. And I guess the question the movie sets up, Dana, is like, what is this guy willing to do to overcome not only these economic circumstances, but to just essentially restore his family to normal domesticity. Right. And in that sense, it is a simple morality play. It really is. You know, there's there's a, there's evil in the world of this movie and there's good and there's a struggle between the two of them. And although that's really compellingly staged by Bahrani and really well acted, I think, by the actors, arguably maybe a little bit overwritten, that's sort of all it is. It's not really trying to give rich character portraits of these, these two characters. And it can get by without that because it's got great performances and it's really suspenseful and it's short. And I, I kind of appreciated that this movie did one thing and it did it well. But I agree that the the breadth of the world that it looked at could have been greater. And in that respect, I would send you back to Bahrani's first three movies that I think have more nuanced, ambiguous um, relationships between the characters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really excited to discover his other work, I have to say, after seeing this. Okay, this film is called 99 Homes. We're a little split maybe on it, but um, check it out. It was really worth seeing. And tell us what you thought of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have? The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by WhisperSync for Voice and Amazon and Audible Innovation. Wish you had more time to read? Here's how you can create more book time. Add narration to your Kindle ebooks. Read on your tablet, and when it's time to go, pick up where you left off by switching to audio and listening on your phone. The best part is that the app knows where you are in the book, so you'll pick up the story right where you stopped reading. I have to say, the advent of this technology makes me so happy. It feels a little bit like one of those things where you, I don't know, if you like watch Star Trek The Next Generation as a kid, and there was that button where they could just like push a random button in the wall and any beverage of their desiring would emerge, <laughs> and then they could drink it. That always seemed like a wondrous technology that should exist that I'm still waiting for. And I feel the same way about this. Like, I can't tell you how many times I have listened to an audiobook while simultaneously reading the paper or ebook of it and spent like little friction minutes at the beginning of each reading or listening stint being like forward, forward, forward. Nope, haven't heard that back. Like just ugh, an innovation that takes wasted minutes out of your life is so delightful. So I'm very happy that this exists on Audible and that the future is now. The technology also allows you to enjoy those books you've been meaning to read but just haven't found time for. So learn how to add narration to your Kindle ebooks by visiting amazon.com slash culturefest. Add narration to over 60,000 Kindle bestsellers and popular titles. That's Whispersync for Voice at Amazon.com slash Culturefest. All right, moving on. 
We are in the midst of a great cultural identity migration. So says Wesley Morris, the Pulitzer Prize-winning critic, who has just joined the New York Times as resident polymath. Congratulations are in order. We'll wait for those for one more second. While I quote from the great piece, his first inaugural piece, I believe, gender roles are merging, he writes, races are being shed. In the last six years or so, but especially in 2015, we've been made to see how trans and bi and polyambi-omni we are. To discuss just how mutable and socially constructed we are, we're joined by Wesley Morris himself. Wesley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hi, you guys. Uh, serious congrats on the new gig. That's Thank fantastic, you. Fantastic hire on their part and great uh, pedestal for you. So um, well done. Thanks. Uh, let's dig right in about any trend piece. As one digs in to write it, one asks, is A, the trend really real? And two, is it genuinely new? Make the case for both of these. Okay. Is it new? No. I think in some ways, one of the funny things about writing this piece was remembering just in in my lifetime, the number of iterations of sort of not gender confusion, but just people assuming men assuming female personas cross-dressing that sort of thing you know this affinity that that white people have tended to have for black people culturally i mean those things have always been things we've been dealing with as a as a nation mm-hmm. um what struck me was the concentration of these things in the last year or so and i mean these are things i was predisposed to notice in the first place and the the wealth of them and you know the sort of variety of them too and you know i th- i think that it was it would have been one thing for something like Rachel Dolezal to happen in and of itself but then you know within a month you had Atticus Finch that Caitlyn um, Jenner Caitlyn Jenner i mean it was just i mean and it, truthfully a lot of these things culminated this summer I mean, Mm -hmm. from like June to August was just nuts. And I just wanted to sort of try to come up with, if not a roadmap, then some sort of framework to process what exactly is going on. Right. So you've got the you've you've got your examples lined up and they're copious and they're totally convincing. So it's real. I want to hear about the framework. How did you how did you organize this material and come up with an idea of what's behind it and why now? <laughs> Sorry. No, I mean it's a really great question and I think that one of I mean I'm one of those people who is constantly trying to figure out why things are the way they are and what they mean. I really think and I'm we can debate this because it's so debatable, but I really think that the election of that guy <laughs> in 2008 really did something. And I think that is the pivot point for all of the first. There was the assumption that, that, okay, well, now that this has happened, none of the things that previously meant things to 300 or 80 previous years, those things no longer matter. Because, look, we all came together. A lot of us came together and did this crazy thing by electing this black guy to, you know, run the country. That is obviously a falsehood. But it was something that we, I mean, I am one of those people as well. I mean, we all kind of momentarily clung to this excitement, you know, like, look what we did. And, you know, let's hope it means something that's good. Let's hope it, let's hope the hope is a real thing. I also think that the, 
apparatus, the sort of cultural apparatus that got us to this point where we were, quote, comfortable or, quote, ready? Do you remember when he was running? Like, there was a lot of talk about whether or not we were ready for this. Are we ready for a black president? And people would be like, I'm not ready for that or we are not ready for that. You know, meaning either individuals or the nation just couldn't handle this. And I think that his actually being elected sort of signaled some some kind of readiness to either move past something or move into it. But at the same time, I also felt like it was this interesting thing where like it wasn't just that he was a black male. He was a biracial man. He's a black man and a white man. And it's also happening at the same time that we have culturally gotten really comfortable with this idea of leaving yourself. If you don't if you don't feel that the life that you're living is your authentic life or your authentic personhood or, you know, you don't like your apartment, there are people who could come in and like make that better. So there's all this sort of there's a lot of change happening around this change, if it even is change. And I would say that it is it is a kind of progressive change. I wanted to try to tell a story about how we got to this point and whether or not we're actually actually there. Yeah, I mean, one thing that struck me, and you mentioned this in your piece, is that in some ways the past year has been a year of incredible fluidity of identity, whether it's increasing awareness of and discussion of transgender people and their rights and travails and and stories. But also it's been a year where the primary story has been the nation repeatedly being called to pay attention to the immutability of blackness and its effect on young men mostly well, on everybody who's black, basically. No, I mean, but I mean, predominantly <laughs> but, but in, the 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 landscape upon which this this fixedness is is drawn is our black male bodies, right? Right, and we see this in the in the great Ta-Nehisi Coates book that came out this year, and and that there's sort of a question about how entrenched and how enduring the original American sin of slavery and all of its attendant consequences has been in in the conversation as well at the same time. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you mentioned the counterpoint in your piece, but to me, it, they feel very opposed, those two strains in the past year in some ways, and possibly um, in conversation with one another. Well, that's, I think, why Rachel Dolezal is such a, and she's not the figure that you hang this piece on. You talk about a huge, broad spectrum of, you know, kind of cultural moments of the past year in which some kind of identity question has been raised. But she is one that brings these two kind of questions together that, that Julia was just talking about, the celebration of mutability combined with, you know, wait, suddenly the offense that somebody is moving into space that isn't theirs. Right. No, I mean, she's totally fascinating to me. I don't I mean, I'm of I'm of both minds. Like, I think it's I think it's both a problem. And I think it's also this really strangely hopeful thing. And I feel like Dolezal, whatever whatever is going on in her brain, whatever is sort of whatever sort of personal tragedy, trauma, whatever is has brought her to this point. I'm also very curious about the sense that she herself, in her own words, does not. She feels black. She identifies as black. And I think the problem for a lot of people is a that she kept it. She lied. You know, the it's the masquerade that was problematic. And also, I mean, you know, to be slightly comical, but but also kind of practical, she was taking jobs from actual black people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, the NAACP job is like, that's a, that's a black job. Um, and I don't know. I just find her, I find that to be such an American. I mean, because we're talking about two American urges, right? The urge to be free, the urge to, like, make yourself 
you know, in opposition to the thing that wants to make you and the the need well, I, you know, the, this sort of uncomfortable reality that this is a country founded upon denial and oppression and genocide in some ways. Do you know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. These two things are, are very much at odds with each other, but also tethered. You know, there's a, that's where the ten, that for me is where the tension is. Mm-hmm. Wesley, aren't we always saying that we're post everything only to discover that we're post nothing? I don't. And, yes. Go on. It, and I'm uh, sorry, I just want to posit a quick thesis, sure. which is this time maybe it really is different because at the core of that assertion was always the default notion of identity of the, the straight white middle class male. And that identity is eroding at the center of default notions of identity. It's no longer considered primary, nor default, nor pervasive, nor universal as a kind of aspiration. And maybe it's that erosion at the center that's allowing for fluidity at the margins and, in fact, is going to completely erode any notion of center and margin eventually. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I I definitely think that that is a lot of what's happening. I also sort of wonder, I was thinking every time, I was one of those people about maybe four years ago who really believed that the way we experienced racism in this sort of, in these sort of virulent, inarguable, I'm calling you the N-word right now, N-word, that kind of racism where like, I'm not going to, I'm, I am leaving this neighborhood because black people just moved in next to me. That kind of racism I felt like was a generational thing that was going to die with our grandparents and maybe some of our parents, depending on how old we are. But then, you know, you go on Twitter or you like you read these reports of like these fraternity. I mean, it is ingrained in who we fundamentally are. It is it is not a receive. I mean, it could be some sort of received discrimination or some sort of received sense of superiority. But I always sort of think it's going to die and, and, and turn into something more institutional and only institutional. And then I just see these, like, you know, these like 13-year-old kids who <laughs> are really familiar with, if not the history, you know, the sort of racial history of this country, then at least this idea that, you know, white means one thing and black means something else. And while I think a lot of the country is sort of moving in a different direction from that assumption. It only takes one incident of that Charleston shooting, for instance, to like stir up all this talk about who we are and who we think we are. That said, it's not insignificant that that flag came down as a result of that. That felt not, it's not quite seismic. It felt deeply, importantly symbolic. I remember being impressed at how fast it was. You know, oh, it, yeah. it wasn't like, oh, let's talk about it. And in six months, we'll push through some, some legislation, but right? S- Within days, But it was to down. Stephen's point, I wonder what would have happened if it weren't Nikki Haley who was the governor, you know? Like, what would have happened if it... I, w- I, would, like to, I would like to see that same conversation take place with a white male governor. I just, I'm really curious about that. Well, in that sense, I think it, it is safe to say, I mean, with Nikki Haley as another symptom of it, that, that Obama did displace something, right? Yes. I mean, he may not be the white knight who saved the country. He, he right. may not. He right. might have put an end to racism everywhere, but there's a, a definitive displacement by the fact that that's happened, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the presidency will never mean the same thing again, which it means in a way that, that power will never mean the same thing again. Which is amazing, but I think also part of how we've ended up with the campaign we've ended up with, right? Like, remember, yep. remember after 2012, where everyone was like, wow, 
obviously now the Republicans are going to have to come to terms with the Latino voters of America and their need to no longer be old white guys who push back against the increasing diversity of the country and and, and in some ways the ambiguousness of the identity of like the American, right? Right. They're, they're, um, or not ambiguous, but maybe fluidity of like the various different things it can mean to be an American now. And instead, like somehow that just went out the window. Yeah. Uh, and now we have a completely different campaign that's entri- entirely predicated on like base nativism, which may, it seems to be maybe this is like a purging phase that the campaign will get through. I you have such want... a great formulation about that, though. You say that Trump, in a way, is like the reverse Obama in 2008, right? Yeah. Like he's he's standing up and getting people to hope for no change, <laughs> right. for going backwards. <laughs> no, I mean, I really, I can't, I honestly can't believe I'm one of the millions of people or the many, many people who cannot believe how effective Trump's thing was. You know, I mean, his his mission statement was as mutable as it was. I mean, fundamentally, it was based on on the status quo, the return to some sort of status quo, you know, something that sort of makes a certain kind of American feel better about this country and whatever they think has happened to it in the last six years. It's just amazing to me. I mean, you would have thought that somebody like a Marco Rubio would have had a clear and open platform to denounce Trump in as blatant and as, you know, un-self-conscious a way as possible, you know, or even Carly Fiorina. I mean, but I actually don't know. I mean, there's a part of, you know, you don't want to alienate who you think your voter is. But I also don't think that they're that I don't think the Republicans, as we understand them to be, really want they don't want that kind of inclusiveness. I don't know. I mean, I think they're afraid of it's like a not in my neighborhood sort of or not in my backyard sort of thing. It's they don't they see where the country is going and they just want to look the other way. I mean, even for Marco Rubio, I feel like the people who represent and give him money they don't want us. They don't want that America. I don't think they want that America. I mean, and I feel like if, if he were backed by different people, he'd be free to say whatever. I mean, I don't know what he actually believes, but I mean, he'd be free to speak to what I assume he would say is an affront to at least his, his own personal identity and his family. Yeah, I mean, he and he and Carly Fiorina. There's been there's been some light pushback in the debate so it's far. It's so light, though. It's very light. I don't know. We'll it's f- true that that seems like low hanging fruit to make it's yourself so look good, easy. right? I don't know. I mean, but I feel like it's so much easier to double down on on racism or or you know or a kind of bigotry. But I think the RNC is starting to realize, you know, even if every white person in America votes for our candidate, we're still not going to win. We have to win over some of these NIMBY people, right? Right, right. right. <laughs> I mean, the NIMBYs. I love it. Wesley, I'll leave it up to you. Should we end on that ambivalent note? Or do you want to tell us whether um, having written the piece, it made you uh, hopeful or despairing? I want to ask you guys that question, actually. No, I mean, I, I really, I mean, I know how I feel. I mean, I'm okay. But I'm also kind of a pragmatist. Do you know what I mean? I know that these things, I mean, it's been a lot of years of dealing with this. I mean, centuries. And I'm not naive about it. But I'm also like somebody who is sort of predisposed to wrestle with these things. And I think one thing that's been interesting about the last six or so years is I have encountered either in my life or in reading white people sort of thinking about who they are in relation to each other and other races too. And I mean, I feel like that is also something that that's new 
as opposed to in like the sort of Archie Bunker style entrenchment. Well, and that's, that's, mm. happens, that's happening with gender and sexual orientation as well, right? right? I mean, there's right. starting to be a little bit more of a sense of, of relativization of one's own identity, right? right? But I also, I mean, I'm just curious about for you guys, like, is there a point at which, you know, when does your whiteness occur to you? Like, when does your identity mm. and whether you identify as white in the way that, you know, I identify as black and and when you're sort of forced to reckon with that identity or that identification. Wow, that is the intro to what would be the single best Gabfest segment ever, but also <laughs> a full hour-long discussion. Oh, I nice mean, dodge, Steve. Ah, no, I mean, but <laughs> no, seriously, I mean, how do you Check your privilege, Metcalf. <laughs> you want me to describe my whiteness no, in well, I mean, 12 seconds? Okay, so oh I, I don't want you to do that, but I mean, I do, I mean, do you think that lately you've been more inclined to think of yourself in a in, in that way? And have you been forced to think about it, or have you... Is it a matter of confrontation? I mean, I guess is what I'm wondering. Well, I'll take a stab, not in 12 seconds and not at the whole question. But yeah, I mean, one one thing to me, like in one sense, the fact that we've been having all of these kind of ambitious and fluid and in some ways exciting conversations and cultural moments that make it seem like identity can, can be more a matter of, of fluidity and, and self-determination is exciting. On the other hand, we've had just this dismal year where the reality of black life in much of America seems violent, unfair, dangerous, and deeply unjust. And those things in some ways seem in conflict. On the other hand, that has been true about black life in America for many, 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 many years. And the fact that it has become a subject of national conversation in and of itself to me seems like, if not cause for hope, certainly opportunity, Mm -hmm. like an opportunity to be aware of the things that still divide the country and and what change might look like or what change should happen or what could happen. And I think having that be like one of the main stories of the year, yeah, it makes me think about who I am and but where you, I come from. Yeah, and, I mean, do you feel divorced from that in some ways? I mean, not some, I mean, I mean, not that you're a racist or something like that, but do you feel, I don't know, when, when a Tamir Rice or an Eric Garner or... You know, I couldn't be more different from some of the people who have been killed. But every time one of these deaths happen, I mean, I, I swear there before the grace of God go I. It could it could happen at any time. I mean, I have been stopped. You know, I mean, I've been and every time I get away, I feel really lucky. Right. I mean, I don't know. I just wonder how deeply the con- how deep the connection is. Um the sort of identification is between... Well, it's a different thing. I mean, you yes. what, what you feel deeply is how how you've never felt that, right? And how, you know, how the stories, the sort of optimistic stories that Americans tell themselves about what kind of place America is just are so clearly not true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that that is something that lands. All right. The piece is The Year We Obsessed Over Identity. It's by Wesley Morris, of course, uh, late of Grantland, the Pulitzer Prize winning critic now hired by The New York Times. Check it out and tell us what you think about it at Facebook.com slash Culture Fest. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Yeah, Steve, we have another sponsor this week. And before I divulge what that sponsor is, I would like to ask you guys about your kids and whether they were good eaters when they were babies. Like, what did they eat? And what did you feed them? Like before they were one, when they were still eating mush. Not to brag, but my daughter has always been a crazy good eater. She will try almost anything, and she's tons of fun to eat with. So shout out to her. How about your your girl, Steve? Oh, my God. My Both of my kids are basically evidence of 
you know, black box, you know, zero correlation between input and output paradigm for human beings. Because, you know, my, my older daughter was like an amazingly picky eater and now she eats everything. And then my younger daughter always ate everything when she was a tiny little one was completely compliant, younger sibling in the classic mold. And now is just a preposterously uh, fussy eater. Huh. All right. I find that somewhat hopeful that perhaps my children's current habit of never eating something on one day that they have agreed to eat the previous day uh, will 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 change. That has nothing to do with the food, Julia. I hate to break it to you. They're Is that just, just life? They Agency. They want Gringo to dance. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, no matter what you are trying to feed your children or whether they are spice fiends or bland moppets. Uh, if you have young kids, you should check out Beechnut Organics. Beechnut Organics is an entirely new line of food from Beechnut. They have completely revamped the way that they've done their baby food after noticing over the past few years an increasing move among young families toward making food at home and a sense that maybe the stuff that comes in jars and packages uh, isn't as fresh as it might be or feels a little overprocessed. Uh, and so they tried to make supermarket shelf ready baby food that is very fresh, that has very few extra ingredients, that has more interesting flavors than baby food sometimes does, and that comes in beautiful glass jars so you can see exactly what you're getting, but still has all of the convenience of prepared baby food. And they do have a wide range of flavors, including classics like butternut squash or some flavors like black bean and cumin, adding a little bit of, you don't see a ton of cumin in baby food, I don't think, so adding a little bit of unexpected spice there. This isn't baby food, it's real food for babies. Beechnut Organics are now available at Target. And there's a special offer for our listeners. Go to beechnutgabfest.com, and you can enter to win a year's worth of Beechnut Organics. That is a crazy amount of free food for your children. So, again, that's beechnutgabfest.com, and enter to win a year's worth of Beechnut Organics. You can also find a link to this contest and official rules on the GabFest show page. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, Julia, thanks. Moving on. Well, I want to have written a decorous introduction to this final segment, um, but I, I, I just couldn't do it. I remained so boggled by the sheer denosity of this article that words failed me. Um, let, so let me simply quote my favorite sentence, uh, sentences from it. Dana Stevens, esteemed film critic for Slate.com, writes, quote, which region of your nether parts do you want cleansed? For how long? And at what temperature? Unquote. What I what I want to know, Dana, is why did it take me so long to find these words in a Dana Stevens piece? <laughs> You've discovered your true interior most self So let's get out of concordance. I'm sure Nether Parts has, has appeared at some point in my slate career before. Okay, well, somehow I'm able to look through this scrim of Danosity and discover that the article is also about Japan. Quote, wherever we went, Japan's cinematic past kept sneaking into the present the same way that fake fog unexpectedly turned a family snapshot into a still from Ringu. Dana goes on to say, the Japan I knew before traveling there was almost entirely the Japan of movies, particularly the country is viewed through a very specific slice of its long cinematic history. Dana, the whole point of your article is, or one point of the article is that this is a mega city and that there's, it's the enormity of it and the totality of it are almost impossible to describe. But interestingly, the coping mechanism of Tokyo residences is, is not unlike the one 
a traveler to it might employ. It's a city of niches as a way or niches as a way of dealing with its uh, enormity. Why don't we start with a niche and we'll maybe build up to the totality. Describe the wonderful micro bar that you went to called La Jete. Right. So, yeah, this is the last segment of the of the article because it was my last night in Japan. And uh, and we hadn't done any nightlife kind of things in Tokyo, which is a legendary nightlife town because we were traveling with a nine-year-old. So, you know, it just it wasn't so easy to, to find somebody to stay with her while we went out partying. But I really didn't want to miss the experience of going to this this bar that I had heard about in this, this neighborhood called Golden Guy, which is in the larger neighborhood of Shinjuku. I'm probably using the wrong word. It's like district, whatever. But um, it's it's a subset of this this larger place that's uh, that Shinjuku is as modern as a, as a neighborhood could be. It's the neighborhood that you see at the beginning of Lost in Translation or that you often see when people are showing kind of crazy intersections in Japan with, with giant neon signs everywhere on high-rises. And nestled in the middle of that neighborhood is this tiny, tiny little bunch of streets. It's six six blocks wide, I think, called Golden Guy that's been a, a party district and a bar district for at least since the post-war era or maybe maybe before that. Um, and, and the bars in Golden Guy are just so charming because they're very, very tiny. I don't think I saw any bars in my walk around with a friend there that would have held more than a dozen people. You know, they're just like little boxes stacked one on top of the other. And uh, and this one particular bar in Golden Guy that's called La Jete is sort of a legendary movie lover's bar and uh, and filmmakers hang out. And, uh, and I had heard about it through the years, heard about it some more during the trip and just decided I've got to go to this place before I leave. And so the few hours that I spent in this bar, La Jete, with this this American expatriate friend who's who's lived in Japan for over 30 years was just such a magical experience that I felt like I had walked into the Brigadoon Village or something. It was sort of like this bar only existed because I dreamed it, because it's it's too wonderful. Anyway, you have to go to the piece to read all about it, but it's it's run by this wonderful woman named Tomoyo Kawai, who is the sole proprietor of the bar, who has worked behind the bar for 50 years, and the whole place just sort of feels like a, an excrescence of, of her spirit. One question I have for you, Dana. So I loved reading this piece, and I loved it. Feels reading it as though, as you were walking around Japan and Tokyo in particular, the line between reality and all of the films whose images are embedded in your mind became like blurrier than it is in your normal life. And That's I, a very good description. Yeah, and I was wondering if you think that was particular to Japan and to Japanese film culture, particular to your relationship to Japanese film culture, particular to how alien Tokyo seemed compared to, I don't know, name a random cinematic European city where on the one hand you've seen a lot of images of Paris or Rome, but on the other hand you like speak French and probably can fake your way through a little bit of Italian and like you have other points of access to the culture um, that are deeper. Like I, I was trying to figure out if it was what it was that was making the cinema pop for you so much on this That's trip. a great question. I think of those things you mentioned, it was probably more the third thing. I mean, we, we did a little Slate Plus segment right after I got back with just sort of a general reaction to the trip. And I think one of the main things I said, which I think other other Westerners who've traveled to Japan have said the same thing, or other parts of Asia, is just that it's it's the most different place I've ever been. It was the least it was the least mappable onto, you know, the, the geography in my mind. And so that is probably why cinematic history kept being this reference point or this kind of buoy to cling to in the midst of, of all this foreignness. But it may also be that I just really love Japanese movies. I always have. And that is kind of one of the reasons that I wanted to go there. I think that the mid-century Tokyo that I describe in the piece, the one that's gone now that you see in all these great black and white dramas and, you know, in the samurai movies and kind of the great mid-20th century um, Japanese cinema 
is is so is so present just beneath the surface. And this, Steve, goes back to the nichiness that you were talking about. Is that Tokyo really seems like a city more so than New York, even that knocks things down. You know, it just it's it's mm. pretty unsentimental and unnostalgic, in spite of the, you know, the incredible importance of of ancestry and history and all that stuff. It's not that that um, kind of importance of history is not necessarily invested in a place in the sense that, you know, with our landmarking of blocks and things, you know, that we that we do in the U.S. In fact, someone told me that there's a um, a, Shinto, a really important Shinto shrine. It's not in Tokyo. It's in some other city in Japan. It's sort of the, the main spiritual center of this ancient practice that's sort of a religion and sort of like a, an ancestor worship cult in a way. And uh, and that the Shinto shrine, although it's this central place, gets rebuilt every 20 or 30 years. They want to, to knock it down and rebuild it because mm. that's sort of part of what it is to be continually renewed, renewed. So even though there's been a shrine on that site for centuries, it hasn't been the same building for even the last 20 years. Well, here, I mean, my question about Japan is like a kind of big, you know, it's not the micro niche question. It's the macro, you know, niche question, which is, you know, having never been there, but wanting very badly to go, what draws me to it is this idea that we've co-evolved as cultures. So you're going to a place that's equally modern, equally postmodern, equally advanced and equally affluent and yet totally foreign. And that seems to me to be a relatively unique thing to do, right? Like, I mean, China is obviously all of those things, but is also overwhelmingly poor and rural still. There's a huge internal migration in China going on. You know, they're part of, they're, they're going through a transition that will make them eventually be like us in those ways. Whereas Japan is there. I mean, it's it's essentially in some ways, what is it? The world's third largest economy after China and the United States. So there's this kind of co-evolutionary fact of, of you know, familiarity and, you know, convenience and modernity juxtaposed with a really deep and interesting estrangement. Does that speak at all to the experience you had in Japan? Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Japan's as modern as the U.S. and beyond us in some ways in terms of how wired they are and how well the subway works. And, you know, they've sort of got some things about modernity down better than we do in the in the U.S. And yet it feels like a culture with ancient roots everywhere and tiny little shrines on every corner. And those things are, are really hard to balance and hard to figure out, which does make for this sense of vertigo. And part of why I wanted to write a little bit about Lost in Translation is that although it's not a Japanese movie, obviously, it speaks to that kind of disequilibrium you were talking about, to be a Western traveler from an affluent country in this Eastern affluent country, sort of the U.S. of Asia or something, you might say. You know, so there's this sense of twinship, but also unfamiliarity. All right. Well, the piece is called Found in Translation. A film critic revisits a lifetime of cinema on a journey to Japan. It's by, of course, our very own precious Dana Stevens. And it's a, it, I really have to say, Dana, as someone who struggles to write meaningful travel journalism, this is a wonderful piece of writing. So congrats on that. Oh, thank you, Steve. All right. Come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Tell us what you think of it. Moving on. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Sounds like a no. Well, they don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. 
All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana Stevens. What do you have? You know, I'm just going to endorse the wonderful book that I'm reading right now, which is Scott Amon's The Speed of Sound. It's a it's a history of the transition from silent films to sound films in Hollywood. Scott Amon is a film historian who basically writes on the, the golden age of Hollywood. And so he's writing about these years, these few years in between Al Jolson's Jazz Singer in 1927 and then the kind of sound revolution that took over all the studios in the early 30s. And it is just such a good piece of film history. He writes about this transition, which I think we all think of. He mentions this in his, in his opening as sort of a singing in the rain story, right? We all remember the story of singing in the rain and somebody faking somebody else's voice and, oh, my voice aren't right, isn't right for the talkies and have a very sort of simple idea of how sound changed Hollywood. And he just completely raises that idea to the ground while giving all due credit to singing in the rain's brilliance and, uh, and, and builds it back up again. So it's a story of the industry, of technology, of you know, social change, of how our conception of stardom and acting and all kinds of other things mm. changed. It's just a fantastic book. So The Speed of Sound by by Scott Amon or Iman E Y M A N. Oh wow, that sounds amazing! And when was when did that book come out? It was the late nineties or so. I think there's late there's 90s. a new edition now, but um, yeah, it's 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 great great film history. Oh, fantastic! Um, Julia Turner, what do you have? All right, I'm going to follow Dana's lead and also endorse the book that I'm in the middle of reading, which may be a slightly higher stakes enterprise in my case because I. I am very much enjoying reading it, but I haven't decided what I think of it yet. Uh, But the book is called Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff, and it is a tale of marriage that promises on the book flap to grow complicated, and I am only midway through, so I have yet to encounter the full extent of the complications. Uh, But the characters are kind of fanciful but compelling, and um, the writing is really good, and the story just kind of draws you along in a fascinating way. So I will I will report back in a subsequent endorsement whether I fully endorse the book through to its ending. But if you're casting about for a book that will hold your attention at the end of a long day, join me in Lauren Groff's Fates and Fury Land, and we can discuss it on the Facebook page when we all get done. Mm. Excellent. All right. Well, Julia and Dana, I think you know me well enough to know after all the, these years that if I could eliminate one thing from the world, it would either be the tentacular reach of global finance capital or fruit-forward wines. It's a toss-up. <laughs> um, and they're interrelated. I, That's the scariest part. Yeah, it's so true. There's a correlation exactly. there. <laughs> right, like palate-scalding, high-alcohol, California, overpriced, shitty California wines are related to the hedge fund re- revolution in our time. It's true. But I, the other night, I took a sip of wine, and I did a double take i was like i couldn't place the wine at all was it a spit take uh, (laughs) nailed it um uh, no it was uh, it was uh, the opposite of a spit take it was a swallow take with a sumptuous mouthfeel i knew i was i think i knew i was drinking a syrah maybe i didn't um but it was it had all of these qualities that don't typically go together in a wine it felt like a new world wine but it didn't feel too big too fruity too alcoholic felt like maybe California, but it wasn't really, it wasn't a Pinot, it was gentle, but it wasn't a Pinot Noir. Yes, I am a total wine snob idiot. But anyway, it turns out it's a Syrah made by a California producer in the Sierra Nevada foothills at a very high elevation, which I think is what makes the Syrah grape very distinctive in this in this instance. It's called La Clarine Farm, C-L-A-R-I-N-E. I really, I mean, you're not going to believe me, but I, having tasted the wine not knowing what I was drinking. I thought that there was something unique about the way they were producing it. Go to their website, check it out. These guys are doing really interesting farming. They're doing extremely low meddling with the wine and the barrel and the bottle. 
Um, and and it really shows in the wine. It's it's really it's truly it's just a beautiful wine, and the story behind it um, equaled the mouthfeel of it. And then the second thing I want to endorse is um, is seeing Niccolo live. A couple years ago, Jody Rosen, I don't know if it was on the show or, or off mic, but Jody said, Niccolo, the great British pop star, late of uh, the band Rock Pile, associated with Elvis Costello, long and storied solo career, is still going. He's in his, now he's 66, um, he's in his mid-60s, uh, making relevant uh, sort of singer-songwriter type albums. Um, and touring, and uh, Jody had just seen him at City Winery in New York and said he was wonderful. He came through Hudson the other night. Niccolo is in wonderful, wonderful fettle. I mean, the guy is doing great work. Not not only is he continuing to write great songs, I mean, he does his you know back catalog with, alone with an acoustic guitar. He's just an absolutely delightful performer. Um, you know, his stage banter, his stage presence, and the music itself are all wonderful. Um, you know, Niccolo, I think, has suffered a little bit for, for he, he produced, I think, the first five Elvis Costello albums and wrote the song What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding, which, of course, overwhelmingly associated with Elvis Costello. He's he's kind of been in that shadow. He has an extremely graceful relationship to that shadow, which is itself part of his wonderful persona. He did a ton of songs, and then he closed with What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding. He does it in a way more sort of uh, Everly Brothers way than Elvis does it way more gently and less outraged um, and and that makes it no less relevant and then he said I want to do one more song and he said it in this slightly pointed way like I really want to do this song and he played Allison which was written by and performed by Elvis Costello and it's probably one of the great modern pop standards ever written and Lowe had no problem closing the you know 90 minute set with someone else's song, happy to be associated with having, you know, produced it and been present for its creation. It was a beautiful night. Niccolo is now touring. I think it was only his second gig on the tour was Hudson. So you'll have plenty of chance to see him. He's coming to a town near you. I really highly recommend it. It's a wonderful, wonderful night. Wonderful experience. That does sound good. And that wine sounds toothsome. (laughs) It is toothsome. All right. Well, um, thank you so much, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon.